my name is Adam, and I am very thankful to be here with you guys today. Ryan, Pastor Ryan gets in on Tuesday, so you'll see him next week. And Pastor Brett is also um, taking some family time in the States, and he'll be back shortly soon. But in the meantime, like I said, my name is Adam, and I am very thankful to be here. Um, it's it's kind of curious that I am here, actually, because I was just talking to my wife about this yesterday, that about six months ago, I was basically, I did say to God, I've had enough. <laughs> I don't want to preach anymore. I don't want to be in church leadership anymore. And I, I'm done. <laughs> and I think that God is, is so merciful and so good that he doesn't always answer our requests because I was, I was very foolish and I was tired. And um, I wanted to share something today that has helped me greatly, um, even just this past week. Now, over the past two weeks, we've been talking about basically lessons learned in the desert. Now, if you remember, the first week that I preached, we talked about David. Now, David was this incredible man, and I mentioned in, in the story of David whenever he was anointed to be the next king, but then he was chased into isolation. He was chased into basically a cave, and it was precisely for that reason that the calling of, in David's life that he had, the palace would not have prepared him for the leadership role that he was going to have. He needed to, to, to kind of be stripped of everything so that God could work on him deep in his soul. And that is why we know the name of David today. We also talked last week about Job and in the incredible revelation that Job had after being confronted with God's infinite power. Now, if you, if you know the story of Job... Job was basically stripped of everything in his life. He was complaining, and he was, I mean, anybody would complain in his shoes. But the way that God answered him was simply by showing his greatness. He didn't really have to explain and take Job by the hand and say, listen, I'm doing this because, and you will see. No, he just showed him how great he was, and that was enough for Job to say in verse 42, um, in chapter 42, verse 5, I had only heard about you before, but I have seen you with my own eyes. And that revelation was so much more precious than anything that he could have lost here on this earth. Now, I like to really, I wanted to share those two stories about David and Job because I feel like I, in some way, relate to them. And I, I have never lived through even a tenth of what these guys did. <laughs> but I, I have felt sort of the same way that they have. I complain a lot, and, and I've also hid, and I've, I've also been very confused about, God, what are you doing? And it's, it's been a very healthy season for me because I've learned that God is not just focused on the superficial part of the human being. He's not focused on having a material partnership with us, and he's more interested in the soul of the man than the, the clothes that he wears or the smile that he bears. <laughs> it's your soul that he wants because that's eternal. 
That's all that really matters. It's an eternal relationship that begins here on this earth, and it goes on to eternity. And it's, it's something unfathomable because it grows deeper and wider and stronger. And I, I really can't wait to, to, to grasp that a little better because right now I don't grasp it. <laughs> Today I, I want to, to share a story found in 1 Kings, and it's about a prophet named Elijah. Now, Elijah is another one of these incredible men that, that honestly deserves honor, and, man, he was incredible. Because the things that he did, the boldness that he had, and we could, I'm, I'm about to tell you more about him, but we could really put him up on a pedestal if we wanted to. But he I don't think he would say that he deserved to be there. <laughs> you see, I think that it's something that is repeated in the lives of a lot of godly men in the Bible that they pass through times where they have to learn a lesson in a desert. <laughs> I mean, if you, if you even consider the life of Jesus, what happened to him before he started his public ministry? He was in the desert for 40 days. <laughs> The desert is a place that instructs, it also corrects, it sustains you, and it can even bring comfort to you. Now, when we pick up the story of Elijah, we're going to be starting in chapter 17. Verse 16, I'm sorry, chapter 16 tells us that the king of Israel in this time was King Ahab, and he was, the Bible says, was the worst king Yet, of Israel. How would you like that title? To be the worst king yet. He was just this awful king. And a lot of it had to do with the queen, the wife that he married, because she brought in a lot of just this this pagan worship and started to really distort um, their views of God and his power. But I want, I want to read um, a passage in 1 Kings chapter 17, but first, let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that it is so powerful, that it even teaches and instructs and comforts today, thousands of years later. I pray that you would open up our hearts to hear your word speak, that, that we would be leaning forward to catch this, this whisper that you might want to tell us something today, God. I pray that you would help me as a speaker. Just use me any way that you want, God. We thank you for what you're doing. In your name we pray. Amen. So in First Kings 17, verse 1, it says, Now Elijah, who was from Tishbe in Gilead, told King Ahab, As surely as the Lord of the God of Israel lives, the God I serve, there will be no dew or rain during the next few years until I give the word. Then the Lord said to Elijah, go to the east and hide by Kareth Brook, near where it enters the Jordan River. Drink from the brook and eat what the ravens bring you, for I have commanded them to bring you food. So Elijah did as the Lord told him and camped beside Kareth Brook, east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat each morning and evening, and he drank from the brook. Now, this is kind of a great intro, because we don't really know anything about Elijah, just that he went to the king of Israel 
was some really bad news. I mean, to go to the king, who was known to be a very bad king, and say, listen, it's not going to rain. There's going to be no dew for, his, for years until I say so. He doesn't even say until God gives the word. The, the, the version I'm reading is the New Living Translation, and it says, until I give the word. And you, you have to admire the boldness of this guy. I mean, to go to a king and basically say, listen, your kingdom is going to wither away before your eyes. No rain, no crops, no livestock. It's going to just wither away before your eyes. And then God takes him and, and he, he hides him. He puts him in next to the stream. And then these birds start bringing him food. And it's, it's like the first drone system was invented by God. He bringing him food, bringing him everything that he needed. And then the story just continues on. And I, I'm going to tell you a little bit about the story because I want, I want to, to tell you about the life of Elijah. He leaves the stream, and he goes to the city, and obviously the city's in a lot of trouble, and he sees this old widow, and this widow is picking up some sticks, and he, he asks her if, if she can give him some food and some water. And she says, well, listen, I am, I'm a widow, and I'm honestly just picking up some sticks so I can just make one last meal for my son and me, and then we're just going to die. Could you imagine the, the, just the disparity? It's like she just gave up. Like I'm sure everybody was just giving up. And he says something very bold and almost, uh, it would almost be arrogant if it didn't really happen. But he said, no, don't, don't worry about that. Just feed me and God will take care of you. And she believes him. And she feeds him, and miraculously, the flour and the oil, they don't run out, and she always has enough to get them through the drought. But then tragedy strikes, and her only son, and this is a widow, and, and this time, basically, if, if you're a widow, you depended on your sons, and she had one son, and her one son died. She was so grief-stricken, she didn't know what to do. She, she came to Elijah, and she said, Elijah, Look what has happened to me. I've lost hope again. So he takes her son, he prays, and the son comes back to life. I mean, there's some incredible things happening in Elijah's life. And even the response of the woman in 1 Kings 17, 24, says, Then the woman told Elijah, Now I know for sure that you are a man of God and that the Lord truly speaks through you. It's like the confirmation to that. Elijah, you are the man. God is speaking through you. You are a man of God, and what you're doing is incredible. Now, three years go by with no rain, and in this third year, there's what I honestly think is the most um, famous event in Elijah's life. And it was all about the contest on Mount Caramel or caramel, whatever you would like to say. Now, some things had been happening. While King Ahab was in power, they brought in a lot of this worship of a, of a foreign god named Baal, B-A-A-L. Now, it was a very perverse god. It was actually a god of fertility. And so everybody 
all the pagan worshipers, they depended on Baal for their crops, for their livestock, and they believed that if they did things for Baal, then he would be happy and he would give them more crops and more livestock and potentially more children. Now, they did some really crazy things. They would offer human sacrifices. They would cut themselves. They would hold these odd acts. (laughs) Just leave it there. So that they would appease this God. Now, ball worshiping set in like a cancer. And, (laughs) I mean, it's easy to judge the Israelites because we we know the outcome. (laughs) We know that God is good. And we know that it's written in the Bible just in a chapter what happens over a course of many years. But you can imagine being an Israelite and, you know, maybe you think that God's just not answering you anymore. So what do you do? Well, these guys have another God. Maybe we should try that. (laughs) Maybe, you know, maybe we should just do what these other people are doing because it's working for them. Maybe it'll work for us. But it was a cancer that set in, and that's why God was so so harsh whenever whenever his people entered into the promised land that he wanted everybody just exterminated. Nothing of this worshiping of foreign gods should be among you. But it crept in. And 1 Kings 18 tells us a story about how Elijah was, in his eyes, he was going to put an end to it all right there. In verse 18, I'm sorry, verse 16 of chapter 18, it says this. So Obadiah went to tell Ahab, the king, that Elijah had come, and Ahab went out to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw him, he exclaimed, So is it really you, the troublemaker of Israel? And this is his response. I have made no trouble for Israel. You and your family are the troublemakers, for you have refused to obey the commands of the Lord and have worshipped the images of Baal instead. Now, summon all Israel to join me at Mount Carmel along with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who are supported by Jezebel. That's the king's wife. So Ahab summoned all the people of Israel and the prophets to Mount Carmel. Carmel, whatever. So here they all are. They are all gathered up on this mountain and all the prophets, there's almost a thousand of these pagan priests that are getting ready for this contest that Elijah's come up with. And also, all the people of Israel are out there gathered around. They want to see what's going to happen. Now, Elijah, he had, I guess, some sort of fame from the king as being the guy whose fault it is for not having any rain. And so the king was very mad at him. The king definitely wanted to end Elijah, but he went along with him as well. And Elijah here proposes a question that I think um, strikes very, very deep into the soul of each one of us today. It says here in verse 21, Then Elijah stood in front of him and said, How much longer will you waver, hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. But the people were completely silent. They didn't really, I think, want to answer the question. (laughs) 
They didn't want to admit that they were Baal worshipers. I mean, these were God's people. I'm sure they felt a little bit of, of shame because they, I think that they would know better. But that's also a question that I, that I pose to myself in my life and to you. How much longer will you waver? I mean, are we serving God or are we serving what the world says is God? And I know that's a strong question and it's uncomfortable to examine our lives. But it is a question, nevertheless, that you do need to ask yourself. And the people were completely silent. Those that know the story, um, they know what happened. I'll, I'll tell it. It's, so they had two bulls, and they cut them up into pieces. Okay? And now the pagan priests, they took their bull, and they put it on top of an altar. And the contest was that whichever God answered and made their animal go up in flames would be the one true God. And so these pagan priests, they take it, they put it up on an altar, and they start praying. They start in the morning, and they just start praying and and dancing and doing these weird rituals. Their God wasn't answering. Baal was completely silent. So they begin to cut themselves and make themselves bleed and, and just cry out to him, and he didn't answer. It goes all the way till evening, no answer. So then Elijah comes up, and he takes his bull. He puts it on the altar. And not only that, he takes 12 jars of water, and he pours it on top of all the meat so that it's completely wet. Everything around it is wet. There's a trench of water around it. It's just soaked. And he says something. And I want to pick up the story at verse 36. At the usual time for offering the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet walked up to the altar and prayed, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prove today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all this at your command. O Lord, answer me. Answer me so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. Immediately the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, and the dust. It even licked up all the water in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell face down on the ground and cried out, The Lord, he is God. Yes, the Lord is God. Elijah then, he seizes the, the pagan priest. He kills them all. <laughs> then he prays for rain to come. And it starts raining. And if I were to be Elijah at this point, this is the point where I would like to be carried away in my fiery chariot. (laughs) Because everything seemed to just be going out on a great note, you know. God answered him just in this incredible, supernatural way of sending fire from the sky. And even the people confessed that the Lord is God. But it doesn't quite go the way Elijah thinks it should go. In fact, I find it very humbling and very real. Really, I mean, the Bible is incredible because 
I mean, we would call him a hero of the faith, and he really did incredible things, but it also gives us a glimpse of some of the darkest moments of, of these heroes that they have. And that is exactly the point of why we're never supposed to put a human up on a pedestal. <laughs> Because we all have struggles, and we all have difficult days, and we all have difficult years in our life. But in chapter 19, I'd like to pick up this little part that says, When Ahab got home, he told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, including the way he had killed all the prophets of Baal. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah. May the gods strike me and even kill kill me. If by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as you killed them, the priests. (laughs) Now notice that there's a very powerful message here. Jezebel, when you think about it, at first you're thinking, well, why didn't she just send somebody to kill him? I mean, she could have sent an assassin, but instead she sent a messenger. And it's, it's, it's a very sly thing that she did, but she didn't need a martyr. She needed a failure. Now, if Elijah would have been killed right there, I'm sure that the rest of the people of Israel, somebody would have risen up. But instead of killing him there, she says, no, he cannot win. Instead, he's going to fail. Instead, I'm going to strike fear into his life so that everybody can see that he's a phony, so that everybody can see that he fears me and not God. Verse 3, Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there. Then he went on alone in the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors who have already died. And here we have the desert scene. And I've added this little picture of that tree. That's what a broom tree looks like, in case you were wondering. And it's a, it's a pretty poor excuse for a shady tree. It um, has prickly leaves, kind of like a pine tree or a cypress. And a lot of the sun's rays just pass right through it. I mean, this guy was miserable. And how, how often are, are we just like him? Because we abandon the people around us, we flee in fear, and we try to find something that's going to give us comfort. And it's usually something that's not going to give you that much comfort. You might think that it gives you comfort. You might think that this this is going to make me feel better. But it's not going to give you real comfort. It's not what he needed. I mean, he was all alone. He had a company of three, though. He had isolation, disparity, and depression. (laughs) And, I mean, we can judge him very easily, and we can say, well, come on, Elijah, cheer up. I mean, think about what God has done before in your past. Think about how he used you. Think about, you know, that you remember that day that, that you prayed that there would be no rain, and it didn't rain. Do you remember that time that the ravens, these birds, came and they brought you bread because God told them to. You remember that time that, that you went to that city and that old woman was there gathering her, some sticks to make her last meal and how God just 
was so abundantly gracious to her and to you. And that time that her son died, how you prayed for him, and he rose from the dead. And then that time when you were on the mountain, and it was one against 950. But God answered your prayers, and he sent fire down. There's some really spectacular things that happened in Elijah's life. Spectacular, just signs and wonders. And we can quickly judge him for lacking faith here. But this is a very important passage in the Bible because it shows the great mercy of God and the grace of God. And there's only a few times in the Old Testament where it is actually believed that God himself appears to a person. And it uses a very special phrase called the angel of the Lord. And it's something that we see, remember, when Jacob was wrestling with the angel of the Lord, when Moses was talking to the angel of the Lord that was in the burning bush. And also Hagar, remember the, the servant of Sarah that was ran away and she was crying and she knew that her son was going to die and the angel of the Lord appeared to her then. And it is commonly known as a theophany, a physical embodiment of God. Let's read it. In verse 5, it says, Then he lay down and slept under the broom tree. But as he was sleeping, an angel touched him and told him, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there was water. And there beside his head was some bread baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord came again. And he touched him and said, get up and eat some more, or the journey ahead will be too much for you. So he got up and he ate and drank. And the food gave him enough strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. There he came to a cave where he spent the night. Now, I think it's, it's important that we, we make note here that, that God understands our suffering. And God understands when we are tired. He's not this cold creator that just like, come on, why, why are you here? <laughs> but he understands and he knows that we need rest. We need nourishment. And that's exactly what he gave him. And then he, he gave him the strength to go where he needed to go. And now it's, it's funny that it says that he went to Mount Sinai. And for the longest time, and it, it, could, it could be true, that God sent him there. But it, it never really specifies that. It just, God says that you need this because the journey ahead will be too much for you. When he was talking about the bread and the water. But Elijah gets up and he goes wandering through the desert for 40 days. Now, it should have been a journey that took eight or nine days, but I believe that he was wandering around. He was still relying on his own human strength, even though God was graciously supporting him along the way. But he was still very stubborn. And, and I think that his arrival to the cave shows us that Elijah was still very stubborn. And it says here in 1 Kings 19, 
9 through 10. But the Lord said to him, what are you doing here, Elisha? And Elijah replied, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. And that's why I wonder, why did Elijah go there? Because God asks him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah just responds with his complaint. God, this is, this is my life. This is horrible. It's their fault. <laughs> I'm trying to do things right. But this is, I'm in this situation because of these people. I think that question that God poses to Elijah is something that, that is very piercing to each and one of our hearts. Oh, Elijah, oh, son. Oh, beloved, what are you doing here? Then some weird things happen. Verse 11 says that God said, Go out and stand before me on the mountain, the Lord told him. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by, and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was the sound of a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And a voice said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied again, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. This passage always baffled me because, I mean, if God's going to speak to you, then it doesn't have to be just incredible and amazing like a, a windstorm, a tornado, earthquake, fire, or a combination of the three, like some kind of Sharknado thing going on where just like, this has got to be God because it's only God that can make this happen. And I think that God specifically did what he did there to show Elijah that, yes, God can do the spectacular. Yes, God can do incredible things that, that only God can do. I like to put it, God can yell, but he prefers to whisper. And it's that whisper that teaches us so much. I mean, we, I've seen in my life how I've always just wanted to pursue these great moments with God where it was obvious that God was the one doing everything, that he was yelling, that God was doing just these incredible things that only he can do. But there's something special about the whisper. I mean, whenever you whisper to somebody, and that's so much more personal, like almost intimate. You can't whisper at somebody across the room. Oh, they have to be right there beside you. They have to be right there beside you, and you, you show them 
You're showing them something. You're revealing something to them that they didn't know. A whisper is something that's very powerful. Now, I think the reason why God didn't respond in the windstorm and through the earthquake and through the fire was that the human heart is so easily waved. The human heart will will pursue the blessings and not the one from all blessings come. The human heart tends to, to look for the spectacular and not quiet themselves down to hear the gentle whisper. We all want God to move in our life, and we all want God to show us what he is doing. And a lot of times, we don't quiet ourselves down enough to hear him. I believe he is trying to tell each one of us something. But so many times we're caught up either in looking for the spectacular or, like Elijah, complaint. Just complaining. I'm here because of them. I'm here because of what they did to me. When God wanted to show him that he wasn't done yet with Elijah, that Elijah's, Elijah's purpose didn't end with his final breath on this earth, but that he had something far greater planned, that he was going to be the mentor to Elisha, S-H, Elisha, and that he was going to do great things. I think that God needed Elijah to understand that he was with him all along the way. He was never alone even under that scraggly tree where he wished to die, that God was with him. But Elijah was so, so concerned, so filled up with fear. And I think God might have been asking him, Elijah, how long will you waver, hobbling between two opinions? Do you have faith in God, or do you fear man? That's a very difficult question for each one of us. Because we all would say that we want to have faith in God. That we want to say that we trust him. But man, fear comes at us from every single direction. (laughs) And we can try to deal with this fear. You know, live in a bad neighborhood, you, you can either move, right? So that's dealing with the fear, just moving. Or you can build a big fence. Or you can invest in an alarm system. Or you can get a big dog. You know, it's, it's, all, it's just transferring your fear, trying to get, put it somewhere, contain it. And I don't think we were ever meant to do that. That's why it's so powerful to say that we fear God. Because if we fear God, and we understand who God is, and we understand his love for us, and really, what do we have to fear? You know, God, Elisha was so used to being God's megaphone to the people and being this just showing signs and wonders that God needed to show him that he is still a, God, a personal God that whispers, that wants to instruct. You know, he went, he went to that tree in the desert 
out of desperation, trying to find some sort of shelter. But a cave and a tree is no refuge. A cave is no refuge. God is your refuge. A broom tree is no shelter. God is your shelter. Something that we as humans, as followers of Christ, we need to understand that our own man-made or man or ideas that come from our heads will tell us how we're going to fix a problem. I need to go here. I need to do that. I need to cover this. When God says, let me be your refuge, let me be your shelter. Psalm 62 is a psalm that is so special to me, to my wife, so special that we had it engraved on the inside of our wedding rings. (laughs) It's a psalm that when we first became missionaries, we clung to it because we had nothing else to cling to. (laughs) And it was a good place. But yet, we as humans tend to try to build our own refuge, build our own shelter. But I want to read Psalm 62, and the whole psalm is great, but I'm just going to read a few verses from the middle. Verse 5 says, Let all that I am wait quietly before God, for my hope is in him. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress where I will not be shaken. My victory and honor come from God alone. He is my refuge, a rock where no enemy can reach me. O my people, trust in him at all times. Pour out your heart to him, for God is our refuge. How powerful is that, to know that God is your refuge? And that instead of fixing everything and, and, and complaining about what other people did to you, that we can just run to him. I think that God asks us, okay, I, I hear you're complaining. <laughs> I understand your situation. I know that you're tired. I know that maybe people have treated you unfairly. But I am your refuge. I am your shelter. I am your God. And how much longer will you waver back and forth from fear and faith? You know, a merciful God found Elijah in the desert. A God that was not coming to, to chastise, to punish Elijah for lacking faith. It was a loving God, a God that brought nourishment, a God that allowed him to rest twice, <laughs> a God that was willing to reveal himself, and a God that wanted to Elijah to understand that he had a gentle whisper waiting for him. But Elijah needed to understand that He needed to clear his heart first because he had too much fear in his life. Now, that merciful God in the desert reminds me very much of the story that Jesus told in Luke. Luke 15, there's this this wonderful story that Jesus was telling these group of people, when, whenever they were criticizing Jesus for, for being with the failures, that they were criticizing Jesus for, for reaching out and spending time with so many sinners. 
And it's a story that, that I want to imprint on your mind. Luke 15, verse 4. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders, and when he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. I want you to, to picture what Jesus is saying. Picture that Jesus is the shepherd and that he has left the others to come find you. And those that have seen a, a, a sheep that has been, I don't know, allowed to roam in, in, in the woods or in, outside of a pasture know that Sheep, they get very dirty very easily. <laughs> their, their wool grows and becomes unkept and can even tangle itself in thickets and briars and sheep themselves. They're, they're, I mean, they're not that smart either. <laughs> and they just continue to wander and roam and they get lost. Now, dirty and alone, that sheep is wondering if all is lost, just like we do. <laughs> we isolate ourselves, we run aimlessly, and we, we try to find some sort of shelter. But it's even said that sheep, they don't even know if a plant is poisonous or not, that they can very easily die if they don't have their shepherd because they will just eat whatever. And Jesus is, is searching everywhere, and you can imagine him with his, you know, the holes in his hands searching. <laughs> and he, he finds you, and when he finds you, he doesn't raise his fist at you. He says, come here. <laughs> he says, come here. He picks up the sheep, puts it around his shoulders. He's not tying it to a leash and dragging it back to the herd. <laughs> no, he loves that sheep just like he loves you and me. Dirty and alone, he picks us up just so that we can rest in his goodness, rest in his grace, allow him to clean us, allow him to put us back, to restore us. The story of Elijah for me is, is so powerful because I've seen how, how God is so merciful in that story and in my life. Like I had mentioned, I got angry at God, and I told him, I'm done with this. After seven years of, of being a missionary in Peru and two years of, of pastoring a church of about 800, 900 people, I got tired. I, got, I thought that God was going to do something, and he didn't. Things didn't pan out the way that I thought they would. And I began to blame others. I began to get mad at myself. And I found myself in isolation. Saying, God, I don't want to do it anymore. God, I'm done. 
I thank God that we have such a, a wonderful, amazing God. That he doesn't just listen to our complaints. And, but that he really does have a plan for us. But it all starts first with calming the fears in our life. To stop, to finish complaining, and then just listening for that whisper. Because that whisper is going to be something far more powerful than any earthquake or any tornado or any fire that you could see. We're not pursuing signs and wonders. We're pursuing a relationship with God. We're pursuing this nearness with him that it is obvious where he is taking us. And if you don't know where he's taking you, you just trust him because he's good. I can do that. I think we can all do that. I think we can trust because he's shown himself worthy of that. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you're such a good God that you have found us in the desert, that you have found us wondering, found us giving up, when we ourselves have said, God, I've had enough, and I don't want to do this anymore, and I don't even know if you're with me anymore. God, you're so good. I pray that you would strengthen those that are going through that time right now. Strengthen those that that, that maybe feel like they just want to lay down and die. <laughs> Pray that you would strengthen them enough so that they can find you, have this encounter with you, and that it would be a powerful, gentle whisper <laughs> that would change their lives, give them direction for a future, a hope, faith in you, and not fear in man. We love you. And we thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.